All right, guys, this is my conversation with founder of Mindlock Mental Training, Dylan Nadler. He works with all kinds of people, athletes, um, from ranging from UFC fighters to NBA players. We break down all the mental capabilities and mental barriers uh, these people go through just to be able to do what they do. It's a great conversation. I know you'll get some value out of it. Let's roll the intro and get into it. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Couch Critics podcast. Let us introduce our next guest coming all the way from Ottawa, Canada on a Sunday night, which we really appreciate. He's the founder of Mindlock Mental Training, Dylan Nadler. How are you doing, my man? Good, man. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm good, man. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. We've been teeing this up for... I, look, I was looking, man, it's almost been a year now since you first reached out and I felt bad because we haven't got you on the show, but it's good to finally have you here. Yeah, it's been a crazy time, you know, I don't blame you at all. <laughs> That's it, man. So obviously you're coming from Canada. We're here in Aussie down under. Um, so most of our listeners and our fans probably won't know your name off the top of your head and your work. So just give yourself a brief introduction and describe what you're about and touch a little bit on Mindlock, which we'll dive into later. Sure. Yeah, so I'm Dylan Nadler. Um, you know, kind of a quick story is I started Taekwondo when I was five, right? So I was always a really athletic kid and my parents put me in the martial art uh you know when i was five years old and as i progressed through the sport i developed a really strong passion for sparring right like for the fighting side and you know the way it works with a lot of the gyms is is like a lot of the places don't focus on that it's very separated right because there's other ways to earn your black belt and to do different things and you know the percentage of people that actually fight competitively it's really slim, right? So what I ended up having to do is when I was 10, I had to switch clubs uh, or when I was 12, sorry, I had to switch clubs and, and go to a place that was more geared for fighting. So, you know, at that time I had my black belt already, but I, I really didn't know how to fight at all. I just kind of had this like energy. So I, you know, I show up and, and, you know, I was really, really bad and I had to learn kind of everything all over, but it was, it was still my favorite thing to do. And, you know, fast forward a few years later, you know, I ended up being a multi-time Canadian national champion, um, team captain of, of so captain of the national team traveling all over the world representing Canada um, on, on some of the biggest stages in the world like Pan Am Championships US Open uh, ended up being you know the first Canadian to win the US Open back to back which is like one of the biggest tournaments um, so you know going from there and, and kind of going off of my own athletic experience I saw firsthand like what it's like to be an athlete and, you know, what some of the challenges are and the hurdles and, and how to really make yourself, you know, succeed. And for me, I was never the fastest or the strongest or anything like that in my division. But what I was is, is you know, I was the toughest, right? So I used the skills that I could control out of my mental skills. And that's what made me successful. So when I stopped competing, I was like, man, I can't believe more people don't focus on this, right? Training, we train so hard, we put so many hours into training. But basically, zero goes towards the mental game unless you're doing something on your own. How can I get this to as many people as possible? So, you know, from there, I started, you know, making a program, doing my research and figuring out, like, what's the best way to do this? And, you know, what I what I did from there is I created my company, which is called Mindlock Mental Training. And, you know, a I guess fast forward a few years, now we're working with athletes in the UFC, Bellator, um, CFL, NCAA. We just had an Olympian go off to Tokyo. So it's been really good, man. It's been awesome. And it's been cool to be able to kind of 
mix the educational side with the side of just being an athlete and, and connecting with these guys on on a different level of like yeah i've been there too you know so that's kind of where i'm at now that's awesome man a couple a couple questions uh from that when you mentioned you stopped competing when how long ago was that and was there a reason behind it or did this just take up too much of your time and you were so interested in this that this is what you wanted to pursue yeah it's a good question so i stopped competing at the end of 2017 so it hasn't even been that long um now the reason behind it, it it's not a sport taekwondo where there's you know a, a huge ceiling to it right it's not like the nba where when you make the league you become rich and famous or even like mixed martial arts where you can go into the ufc like there's places where you can go when you're really good i mean for me i was i was ranked top 40 in the world and it didn't mean much right you know there there weren't a lot of opportunities there um and you my goal was Olympics 100%, right? My goal was to be in Tokyo back when it was supposed to be in 2020. And that was a really realistic goal. But the question I had to ask myself was like, man, like what what am I giving up for this, right? Because your whole life, and, and like I said, I've been doing this for a really long time. I was, you know, in the sport since I was five. And right now I'm 20, almost 23. It takes a lot out of you. And you think like, what am I coming back to? So I was like, okay, let's say I go to Tokyo, I win a medal, like that would be amazing. But you know, I come back and in order for me to get that, well, I'd have to drop out of school, right? Because I'm, I'm in university, and I'd have to at least take off a couple of years, I, I can't work full time, maybe, maybe part time, I can't really have much of a social life or, or, or a relationship of any sort, it, it really is kind of giving everything to it for this final push. Let's say I go and I win gold in the Olympics, which is great, I come back. Well, now I have no money, no degree, no family life. So that mixed with a lot of other changes that were happening. I mean, the coach that, you know, my head coach and my team, um, you know, he had a, a baby. So he was kind of taking his life in that direction. And a lot of my teammates had stopped because of school and things like that. So it already wasn't really a dynamic or in an environment, which I liked because I had to kind of go somewhere else and train with other people. So when you mixed everything together, I was like, you know what? I don't want to be the kind of guy that stays in something longer than I should just because that's where my identity is, you know, like I'm Dylan the fighter. And if I'm not Dylan the fighter, I don't know who I am. And you find there's a lot of people that stick in their sport or whatever it is for too long, just because they don't know where to go. And I figured, you know what, if I can make it in that, I can make it somewhere else. I don't want to hold on longer than I have to. I'm okay with this. And that's why I really didn't have any problem uh, leaving it. But, you know, kind of from there, I, you know, I, since maybe a year now, I've been doing MMA now. So I've been getting back into it, learning the other parts, the, the other martial arts and kind of using that as a foundation. And, and it's been really fun to do that. Yeah. You say you, you say it almost way too often now, especially in MMA and UFC and stuff, the likes of, of guys sticking around for way too long. And uh, it's, I guess it's okay in sports like basketball and the like of, but when it's in combat sports and competition, I don't think you can over overextend your stay because it's pretty dire consequences yeah it's uh the thing is you have to love what you do right you have to have a passion for it and what happens is to be successful in anything whether it's sport life business whatever you do you know you have to have the passion and what happens is when you're super passionate about something the sacrifices and the things you give up it doesn't feel like that big of a deal, right? You're like, oh, I don't go out on the weekends, or I don't hang out with these people, or I don't do this. That's perfectly fine because you love it. The moment that you start to kind of fall out of love with what you're doing or you lose passion, 
every single sacrifice you start to make, you feel it, right? You carry that burden and you're like, oh man. And, and you'll notice that people kind of get to that stage when they start to be really negative about what they're doing. Like, man, I hate this sport. This sucks. I can't believe I'm wasting my time. And I never wanted to be a person that looked back on, on my kind of athletic career negatively because of how much it gave me, right? I was so, I'm so grateful for everything I've learned and the person I've become because of that sport, the last thing I ever wanted to do is look back with any sort of resentment. And that was the final push that made me like, all right, I'm okay with this because I'd rather, you know, cut this off now and, and still look back on this with all the love in the world and to hold on too long and then be bitter about it. And I think that's a big thing too. Yeah, for sure. Totally agree. A couple, a couple more questions on that before we get into mind lock. What, what was some of the, you mentioned you faced a couple of challenges that, and people don't really dive into during their athletic career. What's some of the main challenges that you faced mentally whilst competing and, and training? Yeah. So, you know, with Taekwondo, it's like all combat sports or most combat sports where there's weight divisions and weight classes. So I was cutting a lot of weight too. I mean, I'd be in high school and, and I was cutting like 20 pounds to, to compete, but with Taekwondo, we were fighting like every month, right? So it's not like, you know, MMA, where maybe you'll have a few fights in a year, if you're lucky, like I was doing this all the time. So I was basically always cutting weight. So you know, it was a really tough time. And, you know, being in high school, where a lot of most people aren't like that, you know, it's hard to fit in. And you you kind of mix that with always traveling because Taekwondo is such an international sport. I was always in a different country competing. So, I mean, at, at the end of my, you know, grade 12 year, which is like our last year in high school, I was, I was gone for more than 50% of the semester. So what I had to do is basically like I'd come back and I would just be like, I had to do my schoolwork because I wasn't the type of person who would bring it with me because I wanted to stay focused. So I'd have to come back and just be disciplined. And I think when you talk about hurdles, especially for young athletes, that was, you know, a big challenge for me is how do I stay on top of my coursework when I'm gone all the time? So I was basically like, okay, if I have Tuesdays and Thursdays when I'm not training, those are the days I allocate to my work at lunchtime. I'll eat really quickly, but then I'll also go to the library and quickly do my notes. I'll go home quick. So it's being efficient with your time. And then when you add in the factor of cutting weight and never being there, you know, you, it's easy to be isolated. And I think that's, you know, definitely a challenge. So it's about just, you know, being comfortable with what you're doing, making friends in your gym and, and the people that you can find around you that really do support you because those are the people that, that matter most, you know? Yeah. You mentioned there how pretty much how much of commitment it is to be a professional athlete and be training all the time, sparring, how much it takes you out of you. But then you transition into mind lock. I want to know whilst you're competing, did you have any, well, I guess, did you start your working career in mind lock? Did you just study and then go out on your own or did you work any part-time jobs in between whilst competing or did it, was it all just on the mental way, what you're doing now? Yeah. So actually I started mind lock like four, three, four months after I stopped competing. So there wasn't a, an overlap in terms of you know, kind of the business thing, but I was always incorporating um, like the techniques and the tools because that's what, what I always found important. It wasn't just something I realized after. I mean, if you look at like, um, like my elementary school yearbook, when it's like, what do you want to be? It says sports psychologist, you know, it doesn't say like fireman or police, like even the normal things, like, which is pretty funny because, you know, at a young age, it, it's weird. So I always had you know, kind of like my mindset directed at those things. So when I was competing, I would make sure like I would always I'd have like a book that I kept that I would write in and break down all the opponents I would fight. So I would watch, you know, game tape all the time, even during class. 
And I would sit there and I'd, I'd make tallies of how many times I use this leg, how many times I use that leg, what their go-to counter is. And I would just break people down. And then after breaking them down, I would create kind of like a mental framework of how do I need to approach this fight in order to dominate. So I always had this, you know, kind of at the forefront of my brain of like the mental game is really important. Um, so when I stopped competing, even though there wasn't really an overlap of the business side to it, it was a pretty quick transition into, all right, you know, I've kind of been keeping this to myself and maybe to my teammates, let's get this out there because it's something that is really under underused right now. Absolutely. Was there anyone that inspired you in that sense? Was there anyone in whilst you were competing that you could turn to, to tap into that mental side? Or like you said, was it just a passion of yours from when you were younger or from when you started training? Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I think I've always been that way. Um, but I definitely was lucky enough to have, you know, a training system and, and a coaching staff that was, you know, willing to listen to me, right? So if I brought this to them, because um, they were, you know, great at their sport, but also just very smart individuals too. Um, so I'd be able to go to them and say, hey, I broke this guy down, you know, here's, here's like my 10 sheets of paper, I want to go through this with you. And they would, you know, look at that and, and break it down with me. So it wasn't really like I was prompted, but when I ever did bring it to them, it, you know, it was always welcomed with open arms and we'd be able to go through it. So, you know, they were very flexible with understanding how I like to work and how I approach the fight. So, you know, I'm really grateful for, for having that environment as opposed to like, a, okay, good job. Keep working. It was like, okay, show me, let's do this together. Because, you know, when I go to war, we all go to war too. And if you're going to be in the coaching chair behind me, you know, we need to be on the same page. And, you know, I, I did appreciate that. Absolutely. Now we'll we'll tap in we'll tap into mind lock a little bit. Um, obviously you've worked with some pretty high level guys like some UFC guys, NBA players, like you mentioned, someone uh, that just competed in the in the Olympics. Um, so give us a sort of I, I guess I'll start with what's the main sort of issue or common theme that most athletes come to you with? I wouldn't say there's a single common theme because everybody's different, but there's certain pillars that everybody falls into. So for some people, it's confidence. Uh, for some people, it's motivation or discipline. Um, for others, it's just, you know, choking, right? A lot of times, you know, you feel great in your fight camp, everything goes well. And then, you know, you step in and, and the lights are on and, and, you know, you look around and you just start to hesitate, right? So everybody kind of has different issues uh, or challenges rather. And, and what you find is that a lot of them can kind of get funneled into the same core pillars, right? So you might think you have one thing, but it turns out to be another. So, you know, everybody kind of has their own things that that goes on, but it's, it kind of falls into the same categories. And that's what makes it easier to identify. And once you identify it, it's like, okay, we make a plan, we execute it, and we go from there. And, you know, we treat it in a way that's really tangible, as opposed to just, you know, motivational speaking, like this isn't that this is, you know, really structured the way that you would structure your training. And I think that's what makes it special. Yep. On the, on the other side of that, is there, is there a misconception that you need to have an issue or you need to have something wrong with you to, to work with someone like you? Yeah. I'm glad you said it, man. I mean, for sure. I think, um, there's, there's a ton of misconceptions of like, well, I don't need a mental coach because I'm already tough. Right. And, and, you know, the go-to counter that I have to that is, well, you know, Floyd Mayweather still is a boxing coach right? You could be the best in the world at something, but you still need to be challenged. You still need your tools to be sharpened. So, you know, I would say if you're super mentally tough and you're super confident, that's even more reason to jump into this because you're starting at a head start, right? Take the weapons you have and take the tools you have and you can sharpen them right away instead of maybe being someone that's further along in the, in, in the process further back and having to build the tools first and then sharpen them. It's a longer process. So if you're the type of person where, you know, you're ready to go, you're confident, you've never had a problem, 
even more the reason to jump into this because we'll take what we, what you have and, and and we'll make it even better. So, you know, it's the same way where you could be a jujitsu black belt, but you still, you still show up to class. And I think that's really the, the mindset that matters. And I think it's important to treat it like any other type of training, not where it makes you weak, but it makes you strong, right? Going to strength and conditioning classes, doing your technical work, doing your cardio, the way that training makes you better. And you know, that it makes you feel good after there's no difference with this, right? It's not a, a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. Absolutely. And is it just, so is it just athletes you work with or I guess who can come to you for advice? Can, can regular, regular people that deal with anxiety, maybe in the business or the entrepreneurial world, can they come to you for advice or is it just mainly athletes that you like to work with? I mean, anybody can, can come to me and I'll always kind of read the messages, but I try to stay in my lane. I think, uh, I think it's important to do that because listen, it's not that I couldn't answer these questions that it's not even that I don't want to, but I think it's important, um, to stick to what you know. And, and the last thing that I want to do is kind of pretend to be something I'm not. And I think in this kind of era that we're in, there's a lot of people doing that, right? All these gurus and all these people that are, you know, master practitioners at everything that they do. So I try to be very mindful to stick to what I know, which is athletes, athletics, performance. That's where I feel comfortable. But you'll notice that a lot of these athletes, the problems that they have, it's always related to a lot of the time, home life and work life and things like that. So I'll definitely dive into those conversations with them. Um, but I mean, you know, if you're not an athlete and you're just kind of like a regular person or, or a business person and you want to ask me a question, for sure, I'll, I'll kind of give you my two cents and I'll respond to the message and, and wish you the best. But it's not really something that I'm looking to extend too far because, like I said, it's important to me to kind of stay on brand. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I really appreciate that. So what are... What are some basic practices or things you'd give to an athlete on their first session with you, I guess, that's having, I guess, having doubts in their own ability or having that performance anxiety? What sort of some basic concepts or something you'll start with on an athlete's first session with you? Yeah, cool. So on the first session, we always do two things. We'll do a goal setting activity and we'll do a baseline assessment. So the goal setting activity is basically just a way to, you know, look at what your goals are in, in micro and macro. So long-term and short-term and, and breaking it down really detailed. It's a, it's a good foundation to start with. Now, the baseline is an assessment that we do to test, you know, where you are with your current mental skills. There's no right and wrong. It's not like a pass fail. It really just is like a baseline to see where you are. And, and what we do is over the months, we can look back at it and, and check in on and say, okay, well, we retested the baseline. Not only do you feel more confident, but you're, you know, 50% more confident, right? And, and it's a good way to keep it tangible and keep the data there because, you know, this is different in terms of mental skills and physical skills where it's harder to track, right? I mean, if I can do 10 pushups today and then two months from now I can do 20, well, I know I'm getting stronger, right? Well, how do you really know when you're getting mentally stronger, when you're getting more flexible, more resilient? So the baseline is a really good way to track it. And I think that's important. Um, but in terms of like, what's something that you can do right away to make yourself even more mentally strong than you are now, I always, always, always start off with uh, journaling. So what I'll do is I'll encourage the athletes to, hey, grab a journal, go to the dollar store, right? Pick it up for two bucks, get a pen, throw it in your training bag, right? Because if you leave it at home, you're going to forget half of the things by the time you get there, throw it in your training bag. And after training, take it out and just write right? Write about what did you do today? How did it feel? What frustrated you? What made you feel really good, right? These are things that are gold to an athlete, right? Because by having that information, you can look at that and, and completely make plans from that. So you know, there's, a, there's a quote that I really like, and it says, you have to collect the dots to connect the dots, right? So when you're journaling, you're like collecting information, collecting information. And then what you can do afterwards is you can scroll through those pages and realize like, whoa, 
I'm seeing some trends here, right? On the days in which I slept in later, this is how I felt. On the days in which I ate this, this is how I performed. When I listened to this song, it made me feel this way. So you can look back and say, wait a second, I didn't realize that this actually impacted my energy levels, but it does clearly, right? So it's a good way to build self-awareness and to document your process. And I think those two things are huge for anyone, you know, let alone an athlete. So document your progress, um, develop that self-awareness. And it starts with asking yourself questions. How did I feel today? What was my energy level? What did I learn? What really pissed me off? What made me feel awesome? That's a great way to start. And you can do that tonight. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned something at the start there that um that really intrigues me a lot is and it's the um goal setting. And I'm just intrigued in how you what sort of framework you use around goal setting because I know it's important for regular people too, not just athletes and goal setting. And I just want to know how you sort of break down your goals. Do you break it down into monthly, weekly, even daily goals? Like I'm just curious at how you structure that. Yeah, for sure and, and all of the above. So, you know, the biggest problem that I have traditionally with the way that people are asked to set goals is people are asked, what's your short-term goal? What's your long-term goal? Right. I mean, I've been asked that before. I'm sure you've been asked that before. Everybody's asked, Hey, like what's your short-term and long-term goal? It's okay, but it's so vague, right? Because what does short-term mean? Is short-term tomorrow is short-term a year from now, right? Especially if we're assuming that long-term is super far down the line. So the way that I like to break it down is I not only do I chop it up into smaller sections. So yeah, you have your short term and your long term, but then you have monthly, daily and training goals, which I think are important, which is, you know, when you show up to training, what's your goal? Obviously you want to train hard, but is there anything specific that you want to work on this week, right? Breaking it down into that. And not only do I look at performance related goals, which is like the, what do I want to do? But we break it down on another side, which are called attitude goals. And we say, how do you want to feel to do those things, right? Because when people think about their goals, it's always, what do I want to do, right? I want to win this. I want to win that. I want to develop this skill, right? I want to be here. I want to make this much money. It's, it's always the what. But a good question and, and arguably the more important question is, you know, emotionally, attitude-wise, how do I need to feel to make that happen? And we never set goals for our attitude, right? You kind of just wake up and you feel how you feel. But imagine you said, well, my goal this month is to really try to be more positive, to be more optimistic, right? To be more flexible and go with the flow. And even when things don't go my way, I, you know, I keep pushing and I, and I adapt. When you start with a foundation of the attitude side, well, now those performance goals become easier, right? Because when you're in a good place mentally, well, now you show up and it's easier to execute. So, you know, it really is, a breakdown of goals. And it isn't just something as simple as what's your short term and long term, we really look at it for a long time and break it down in a way where it serves as a blueprint to guide you through your days, right? Because not only should you know, you work really hard for your goals, but I think that your goals should work for you. And by having it this detailed and this intricate, that's how you know, you can work for each other there. For sure. And does does manifesting and visualizing, does that tie into goal setting? Because you goal setting, you know where you want to go monthly, uh, quarterly, six monthly. Does having that framework there, does visualization and manifesting them things, you know, whether it be daily or weekly or whatever, does that align in, in that sense? Yeah, it's like a branch, right? You take one skill and it branches into something else and, you, you know, you start with goal setting and it turns into visualizing. And like you said, you know, everything can come together. But I kind of like to keep it different and go section by section, because if you kind of throw everything at the same time, it's a lot, right? Especially when you're throwing in kind of like activities that people have to keep up with, whether it's journaling or it's taking the time to, to visualize, because I mean, taking 10 minutes to visualize seems fine, but then when you start to try to do it, you're like, oh my, you know, where do I even start? So when it comes to visualizing, you know, for sure, 
you visualize based off a goal that you have, right? So if your goal is, you know, I have a fight coming up in six weeks, you know, I want to dominate. Yeah, that's what you're going to visualize. But even the way that we structure visualization, because I care a lot about breaking things down is, you know, having a blueprint for that too, is not just visualizing yourself winning, but how are you going to do that? Right? What's the first step? And, and what you'll find is, you know, you can start the visualization process far before the actual event starts, right? So if we're looking at fighting as the sport that we're talking about, you know, a lot of times people visualize the referee saying start, and then them dominating, right? That's how you visualize the fight. I would argue that you could start visualizing 48 hours, 24 hours before the fight even starts, because you look at when do the routines kick in, right? When do the, the repeatable things start to happen? Well, you know, you weigh in and you always know, okay, after I weigh in, I like to go get this type of food. And after I get this type of food, I know I like to watch this show. And after I watch this show, I know I like to take a nap. So the repeatable events that you can visualize kick in before the fight itself. And when you look at when people start to kind of break down mentally and get the most nervous and anxious, it's not in the fight, it's beforehand right? So if you can take the time to visualize the process leading up to the fight, and then the fight itself, I mean, you know, that's where you're golden. So, you know, for sure, there's tons of exercises to do around that. And, and I like to start it even earlier than just the fight itself. Awesome, awesome. Now, I want to dive into, we obviously know the current climate at the moment is pretty hectic, especially here now in Australia with the COVID, it's, it's starting to get its second wind here. Um, and we're in a pretty serious lockdown at the moment. And I'm curious, mainly for people, whether it be hobbyists or jujitsu guys or anyone that trains or can't compete at the moment, what's some practices they can use to stay disciplined during these times and keep that motivation, I guess? Yeah, no, and, and, and that's that's true. I mean, I think everywhere right now in some way or another is being impacted by this, right? And I think it's important to keep things really micro, right? And, and what I mean by that is focus on those smaller goals, right? So, you know, different times of the year, different times of the day even, you're going to be motivated by different things, right? Sometimes it's those macro goals, you know, those big ones where like, you know, world champion, undefeated, right? It's those things that really motivate you to get out of bed. Sometimes, you know, you wake up and you feel bad, you feel terrible, you're sick, you're injured, you can't leave the house. You're like, man, that feels so far away. Like, how am I, if I, I can't even, I can't even train today, how am I going to be a world champion? And you can feel defeated. So, you know, what I suggest doing is really bring it small, right? Bring it micro and what can I do today? right? I might not be able to do this. I might not be able to do that, but what can I do today? Okay. You know what? I can go for a jog or I can read a book or I can do 20 push-ups in my living room, or I can focus on stretching for the next 30 minutes or working on my mobility or, you know, listening to a podcast or visualizing, right? It's what can I do today in this very moment? That's going to get me 1% closer to where I need to be. And when you focus on the things you can do instead of all the things that we can't, that's a good way to keep your motivation up because it's so easy to be like, well, the gym's closed and I don't have any training partners and I can't leave the house and though it's raining outside. Like there's so many reasons to be negative. Don't be that person because that person could be the person you're fighting against and you want to be, you know, as, as advanced as you can be. So you, you know, differentiate yourself from them, right? Be positive, focus on the things you can do, bring it super small and ask yourself, well, what, what can I do right now? And I think that's a good way to stay on top of things and be disciplined. Absolutely. I think that's super, super important lesson. And I think a lot of people, not just athletes, will get a lot from, from what you just said there. So personally, on a personal note, did you have to change anything with the way you run your business due to the COVID-19? Did you have to pivot in any way? Um, you couldn't do any face-to-face. -face. Did you have to change anything in the way you run things? 
So I got pretty lucky. So, you know, the way that I work with all my athletes is basically like, you know, what we're doing now, I, I do it all online consulting like this. And, and it kind of just happened like that, because almost all of my my clients are international, right? A lot of them in the States, even some in Australia too. So, you know, it, it didn't impact me in terms of the ability to run the sessions because I do it virtually and anything that we go over, I just email out. So if we do that goal setting activity, instead of you having to like sit there and write it down, I keep note of it, I send it out to you. But however, I mean, with everything shutting down last summer and gyms being closed, events being canceled, I mean, it was hard for people to stay in it. A lot of people didn't have any money. A lot of people, you know, lost motivation. So for me, it was more so not how do I change what I'm doing, but how do I, you know, get through to these, to these athletes even better because, you know, a lot of them were, were, were pulling out, you know, obviously. So, so what I ended up doing was saying, okay, you know what, I got together a whole group of people that have always been interested, but you know, had different hurdles. Maybe they couldn't afford it. Maybe they didn't have time. And I said, okay, we're going to put together these like monthly group zoom calls for free. And we're just going to talk, right. It's going to be a space where you have the opportunity to kind of get this training in without worrying about, you know, paying for anything or making too much time for it. So it was basically like a once a month thing. We'll get together like 10 or 20 of them. And we would, we would kind of have these group sessions and that's kind of one, one thing I did to adapt to what was going on. But like I said, I, I got kind of lucky in terms of, you know, the structure of this has always been, you know, pretty virtual anyway. So, you know, that I was lucky enough to be able to maintain, um, what I was doing throughout that. Yeah. What is, what are, I guess, some of the lessons that you've learned from, um, COVID and what's going on, I guess, in a business sense and also on a personal level about yourself, did you learn any, anything about yourself being, being locked up like this? Yeah. I, I, and I think everyone did, you know, I think everybody kind of had those times where they would just wake up and be like, you know, what am I doing? You know, like, why, why should I do that? Why, why should I go for the jog or go to the gym or do anything? Like, I don't even know when, when my next event is or when training is going to open. And it became very um, like motivation became tough, right? It, it, there was a lot of people going like, well, why? And I think that's important to, to really dig deep and find that self-motivation and to remind yourself, like, why do I really do this? Right. I think there's a lot of people that start for a certain reason and they continue it because they love what they do. I think you get to a point when you're so deep in it that you kind of forget and you're in it for other reasons. Maybe it's because you need to make the money. Maybe it's because you have a reputation of being an athlete. Maybe it's for this or for that. And I think you can kind of stray away from the reason why you started. And I think throughout COVID, it forced a lot of people to be like, man, like, why, why am I doing this? You know what I mean? Like, this is going to be tough. Like it, when the gym opens, I don't even know if I have a hundred bucks a month to pay to train. I don't even know if I have, you know, training partners that are going to be able to help me out. Like, you know, it, it became really easy to quit. And I think there's a lot of people that did, and I don't blame them at all because times were tough, but I think the people that stuck with it stuck with it because they refound that passion and they were forced to dig deep and be like, why am I doing this? And it's the same thing for me. I mean, there's a lot of people that I was working with that had to stop running sessions and I had to figure out like, how can I adapt, right? I can sit here and feel sorry for myself and be like, well, this sucks. I can't control this. I can't control that. Let me focus on what I can control. Let me adapt as best as possible. And, and let me come out of this strong because what happens is when things kind of burn and, and hit the ground, I mean, there's going to be certain people that come up stronger than ever. And, you know, my goal is to be one of those people. So, you know, that's one thing I think that I learned and a lot of people did is like the things that you do, if you don't have that genuine passion for it, the motivation is never going to come, right? So have that motivation internally, figure out your why and, and keep pushing from there and, and you'll make it happen. I feel like that's, that's the myth with motivated, motivated, motivated people, I guess it's, they're more or less just people that are passionate and love what they do. I don't think motivation in a sense doesn't really 
exist if you look at it that way. It's just people enjoy what they're doing or they're just extremely disciplined. Mm-hmm. But I want to I want to pivot, man. I know I obviously see you got the nice setup there with your own microphone mm-hmm. and and windbreaker there. I want to pivot, and uh, I know that you have a podcast also, Locked In with Dylan. Um, I just want to know what was the inspiration behind starting this. I can obviously tell you're very articulate and well spoken. So, what was the the catalyst and the inspiration behind starting Locked In with Dylan? Well, thanks, man. Thanks for thanks for the compliment. Of um, course, that was actually something that too came from adapting to COVID and figuring out like, what can I do? Right. You know, what are the things that I can do that I'm in control of? And, you know, what's funny is, you know, I, I have these conversations with athletes all the time, right. I'll run sessions and, and, you know, the things we talk about are, are really, really helpful. They're really important things. I mean, the things that we talk about, there's things that could help a lot of people. Right. And, you know, obviously they're private and it's not like I'm going to go post about anything that we talk about or, you know, share a video of the session because it's private. But at the same time, I think athletes are a lot more willing to talk about what they're going through and the, the, the challenges they face and the struggles than I think maybe they were a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, 10 years ago. So what I did is I figured, you know what, let's create a platform where we can have the same conversations we're having, but you know, with people being able to watch and listen and have an audience there, because there's so many gems that come up from these conversations, you know, let's share this, right? So having conversations with professional fighters and sports agents and different coaches and and trying to get every different aspect of, you know, what it is to be an athlete from all these different personalities, and, you know, break it down from there and have these conversations. And instead of it being me and you one on one private, you know, kind of doesn't go anywhere after that, having the ability to say, man, taking these things that we talk about anyways, but having an audience to really gain from it because there's so many things that we kind of uncover in these conversations where I go, man, there's a thousand people out there that have the same problem. And if they were here listening to it, they'd feel way better. And I think, you know, that was my way of saying, okay, it's one thing to have the private sessions, which is important, but you know, for the people that are comfortable with it, let's open this up and have, have a chance for other people to listen. And, and, and that's been huge. Absolutely. It, it, it almost gives people, you know, a chance to sit in, even myself listening to Joe Rogan, your podcast, everyone's podcast, it gives you a chance to be in a conversation that in reality, you'd never, you'd never be sitting in on a conversation like that. And you can gain so much from it. And it's such, so raw and direct to consumer that I think the way podcasting, go, podcasting is going, I feel like it's taken over the media world in a sense. Yeah. And, and it, it's another layer to it. You know, I mean, you can, you can turn on so many podcasts with with different fighters and all you hear is you know the questions of like how fast are you going to knock this guy out or you know how much money did you and it's just like very surface level right because but you can't blame them because at the same time also fighters they need to be promoters right so i find there's a lot of shows out there that are basically just commercials you know they're commercials that are advertising these fighters and it gives the fighters a chance to kind of say what they want to say and puff up their chest and there's a lot of those right so i I was like you know let me take a completely different different course here and let me talk to the same fighters but we're going to go deeper right we're going to talk about things that actually matter we're going to talk about the challenges that they face how they got through them you know what were the things that kept them going because that maybe i'm maybe it's just me but those are things that i would want to listen to right i don't need to hear for a fourth time someone talk about how strong they are right i want to know how they were able to kind of combat the things that they went through when they were younger and how they, you know, hear their story and the things that they went through. And I find that relatable. So, you know, that was kind of the route that I wanted to take. And I think that's why, you know, it was important to do it that way. I think that's the key word that it makes 
almost superhuman people like these high level fighters and basketball players relatable to normal people and it makes you think that that's what they're doing is not achievable but you can do things for yourself they face the same challenges you do but where can people find your podcast is it spotify youtube all the regular places yeah everywhere everywhere apple music spotify um video video version is on youtube too so anywhere that you kind of listen and watch your podcast it'll be there that's it. So that's locked in with Dylan. One last question I want to ask, what's the best thing or the best lesson you've learned from podcasting? The best thing that's come from, from podcasting? It's a good question. I think, um, you know what? And I haven't done it a lot. I think I've only done maybe like four or five episodes. So, you know, not at your level at all. I would say that, you know, in order to be a good podcaster, you need to be able to ask the right questions, Right. And, and you definitely know that too. You need to do your research. You need to be able to understand what you're asking because you don't want to ask something that, you know, maybe has been answered a thousand times. You don't want to ask something that maybe someone's uncomfortable with or, or whatever it is. So, you know, thought provoking questions are the best way to get a genuine response out of somebody. And I think as a guest, people respect that, right? You know, by you doing your research on me and asking me a personal question, I'm going to be more willing to answer that because I know you put the work in, right? It's not just like, hey, tell me your story. And then we go from there. And it feels like we're just kind of having a conversation, which can be nice. But at the same time, I think people value um, when you put time into kind of understanding them. So I would say the one thing that I learned is take the time, do the research, ask thought provoking questions, and that's how you're going to get the most genuine responses. And there's nothing better than that. I completely agree. And I think that almost ties into what you said earlier about your podcast and what you like to ask these fighters, they can say they're going to knock some dude out a hundred times and you don't care for it. But when you, when you know what they wake up and do in the morning, what's their morning routine, what they do before bed, that's, that's what people really want to know. People are just curious. And I feel like tapping into that and making things more relatable is the best type of podcasting for me. I agree, man. Absolutely. So we reached out, man, to a few of our listeners and our fans to get some, get them involved, which we like, we like to do at the end of the podcast, um, and they to shoot some questions at you. So I'm gonna, I've got a few here, man, and we'll we'll try and get through them quick. There's a there's a few gems in there too. So let's do it, man. I got the time. Yeah, let's go. So first one, I will hit. It'll be dinner with three people, dead or alive. Who would you choose? That's a good question. Okay. <laughs> I would say GSP number one. Let's go. He was like yeah. my. He was my. I I don't even know if you can see it here, but I have like I have the the action figure here. Yeah, and yeah, then I yeah. have a signed glove from him over there. Let's go. I so wish it, I could show you behind. We've got about twenty Zing pops sitting on the twenty Funko pops sitting on the thing on the shelf there. So I'm with that's you. so funny. So yeah, that's been my guy. I mean, a Canadian. Um, you know that that that's always been my guy. So GSP for sure. Um. Man, that's a that's a tough question. I'm I'm also a, a pretty weird guy, so I feel like I have interesting answers. You know what? It said dinner with three people. Okay, I would say Drake for sure. Let's go, Drake, yes. Toronto guy. First, that's like my my favorite artist of all time. And then let's go with um, let's go with I'm trying to think of something different. I'm trying to think of something. Let's go with my guy Justin Timberlake. Justin Timberlake. So I, I was in sync. My favorite, my favorite group. I have a thing here. I have like a limited edition action figure set from NSYNC. So that's, that's my dude. So I would say Justin Timberlake, GSP, 
and Drake. And Drake, let's go. That's that's such a good answer. I didn't expect any of them. Well, I, I kind of expected the JSP and Drake being a Toronto guy, but yeah. So we'll move on, bro. Um, we one of our fans wanted to get your thoughts on cold therapy, and you know, ice baths, cold showers of the like. Okay. I mean, I don't really know much about it. I mean, that's probably more like uh, physio than what I do. Yeah. But I think, you know, from what I know from it, it's a, it's a good way to relax and, and kind of cool everything off. And I think, you know, more importantly, people that commit to those things, whether it's an ice bath or, you know, they're in one of those cryo things, it gives you time to just like exist, right? You don't have your phone there. You don't have, you know, you, you can't really check out. So I think if you do have to commit to like a 20 minute ice bath or being in cryo, you know, number one, you'll get the physical benefits, which I don't know too much about, but, you know, assuming that it's there and assuming it works, you know, that's always a good thing. But I think more importantly, even kind of tying it back to the mental is taking five, 10 minutes and just like existing on your own. You know, I think that can never be beat, whether you're just sitting on your bed or you're in a bath or anything like that. Anytime you have an opportunity to just be on your own and, and kind of like think your own thoughts, I think that that's a gem too. So yeah, I'm for it absolutely um all right next one are you do you read books are you a reader i try to i try to yeah for sure uh what's the best book that you've ever read okay so i could actually answer this off the top so you know i got a lot of my book recommendations from my coach right my my main take on coach that i work with with my whole life is his name's akmal farah so he, he read a lot and, and he would tell me like, Hey, you, gotta, you, sh- you should read this book. And I was like, okay, whatever. So there's a book called the four agreements and it's by, um, who's it by something Miguel Ruiz. I think it might be Juan or something like that. Um, it's a book and it's a really popular book and it's basically like four agreements to live your life by. Um, and, and it basically ta- it touches on, you know, um, things like don't take things personally um, don't make assumptions, be impeccable with your word, you know, always do your best, very, you know, core pillars. And, you know, it, it's a spiritual book, um, you know, it touches on, you know, why, you know, you should be a better person and things like that. And I found especially kind of being younger and reading that in high school, it helped kind of guide me into like, who do I want to be, right? You know, even something as simple as, you know, don't make assumptions and, you know, don't take things personally, you know, it really does help. And I think even, you know, touching on the don't take things personally thing. I mean, it's so easy nowadays, right? Between the internet and comments and people talking, you know, it's so easy to hear something and be so triggered by it. Right. And I think when you remember, like, you know what, like a lot of the times when something happens, it has nothing to do with you. You know what I mean? Like, you know, if I give you a, if I glare at you in the hallway, when I'm walking in class, I could just be having a bad day or maybe I just got a bad grade on something and you're the first person I saw. Right. But if you don't have that skill, you're going to internalize that and it's going to ruin your day. Right. So it's like this domino effect. And when you kind of have this force field around you, when you don't take things personally, um, it doesn't mean you don't respect it, but you just don't take it. You don't take it to heart the same way you could. I think that's a, a core pillar. You're almost into invincible in a sense, if you don't take things personally, nothing exterior can hurt the interior. Yeah. You just remember like, you know, a lot of things that people do is because of them, you know, it's not really because of you. And, and I think, you know, those are things. So that, that book, I would say the four agreements is, is probably, you know, one of the best books I've ever read. And, you know, there's a bunch of books by that author that I read afterwards and that they're all amazing. Awesome. Yeah. That's definitely on my list. I, I heard it on a Joe Rogan episode. He, he raves about that book and says how much he likes it. So that's definitely cool. on my list. I'll definitely have to read it now. Um, so a couple more, man, I will go with 
All right. So do the techniques differ between sports, like from say basketball to UFC? Is it the same practices used overall with mental, uh, mental training or is it, do you differ from, you know, combat sports to regular sports? Yeah. So I would say that, you know, the practices in general are the same across sports, but you definitely specify for each single person. So, you know, I'll give you an example, you know, you know, a practice that we work on is focusing on the process rather than the outcome. Right. And I mean, that's a huge cliche. You hear it all the time, kind of goes over people's heads. It sounds like just total BS. But when you think about what it actually means, it's really important where, you know, something like winning, right. Everybody says, Oh, I want to win. Right. I want to win that winning is an outcome. It's not a goal, right? The winning is what happens when you do something. So instead focus on, well, what do I have to do to win? right? Focus on your process. So, you know, this is a broad practice that can apply to any sport, but how you choose to apply it can be, can be personalized, right? So when I look at a fighter and I say, focus on the process, focus on what you need to do to be successful. Well, that might look like having good ring management, right? Keeping your hands up, you know, being engaged, being alert, you know, slipping the shots when you see them, finding the open opportunities, um, you know, not moving back as much, you know, these are those are the specific ways in which a fighter focuses on the process. When you're looking at basketball, you know, if you're a point guard focusing on the process means, okay, get to the line and try to see who's open, right? You, you know, your process is using your court vision to see who's open for a pass, right? It means being available to rebound and, and kick it out. Focusing on the process means, you know, when you see an open shot, you, you need to, you know, choose, do I want to take the shot that's there, fake it and go towards the rim? It's, what does my process look like? So the, a lot of these are, are practices that are, you know, apply to every single sport, every single person, the details of it can be, can be changed based off of what you do. Okay. Okay. That's good. I, I, I was interested about that question myself. So I was, uh, a lot of people would take a lot from that, I believe. Um, so I've got, what are the, what are some simple but overlooked disciplines that are used in sports that could translate to enhance someone's mental capabilities in everyday life? It's a good question, man. I mean, I, I would argue everything, right? I would argue that everything that you do on the mental side is completely transferable, right? I mean, you look at something like, we, well, even just of what we talked about, you look at goal setting, right? You know, when you're an athlete, goal setting is important. When you're a student, goal setting is important. When you're in business, goal setting is important. So these are things that complete, can completely be transferable. You look at things like visualizing, visualizing, you're like, well, if I'm not an athlete, what am I going to visualize? Well, I guarantee you that if you have to present something in a meeting, you're going to be nervous, right? Especially if it's to the boss or to the CEO, or it's just to a group of colleagues, you know, you're going to get nervous about that. So what you could do is you could sit there and visualize, right? You know what your presentation is. You close your eyes, you picture yourself walking into the room and starting and you visualize yourself to start to feel nervous, but to overcome it, you know, those are practices that can be applied to anything. So I would say any practice, you know, that you do mentally, is going to be transferable because you also don't need anything, right? I don't need a weight rack to be mentally strong. I don't need a track. I don't, I don't need anything. I just, you know, I have it, you know, kind of in my head. And once it's there, nobody can take it away from me, right? I mean, it, it's a tool that exists completely within you. So once it's developed and it's maintained, no one can take it away from you. And I think that's what makes it special compared to everything else. Absolutely. You touched on goal, goal setting there again. Um, I want to know what's the... What's the ceiling for, for Dylan Nadler and my knock mental training? Where, where's your end goal? I guess, where do you, where do you see yourself? I don't know, five, 10 years time. Where's the ceiling for you? Yeah. So, you know, my goal is, is, is to make mental training, you know, something that's cool, 
right? I want to take this and, and build it into a brand that people recognize, that people know. You know, when you say mental training, you think of mind lock, right? I think, like we talked about at the very, very beginning, this is still a uh, you know an industry that's that's kind of kept in the shadows, right? If someone is working with someone, I don't know if they want to talk about it. They're not sure if they want to share it. And and the and the professionals that work with the athletes, you know, they're not. They they might be you know old like PhD professors, and they don't know anything about social media and Instagram. Or, there's a lot of different problems with it, right? And and you know there is no recognizable brand. It's not like when you say, okay, you know, name me a a, a manufacturer of gloves, like you know who you're going to think of right away, whether it's Venom or Reebok, or whatever. There's nothing like that for this. So my goal, honestly, and, and, and what the ceiling is, is, is to be recognizable, is to make mental training cool, is to make it popular, to make people want to do it, right? To be at a place where, you know, dominating the industry, not just of MMA, but of all sports, because this is something that's transferable between sports and, and even outside of that. So, you know, when I look at, you know, where I want to take this is keeping it on the track that I'm at and turning this into something that's cool, that's recognizable, that's a brand that people want to be a part of instead of keeping the shadows. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. I think that's a good way to finish this off, brother. I've, you know, I'm I'm really happy that we've done this. I'm stoked that I've got you on, man. It's I've enjoyed your chat. I think a lot of people will get so much out of this. Um, like you said, I can see with the trajectory you're on, I know mind lock mental training will be at that point. And when people do think of mental training, the first thing that's going to come to mind is mind lock. And I'm I'm sure of that worldwide. So I really appreciate you jumping on, man. Let everyone know where they can find you, your socials. Yeah, for sure, man. You can find me at Instagram. So it's at mindlock with an underscore. If you want to see my personal page, it's Dylan Nadler with an underscore there too. Uh, you can check out the website. It's www.mindlock.ca. CA, the Canada one. Um, I'm trying to think YouTube, you know, same thing there. You just search up mindlock. Basically, anytime you search up mindlock, it'll be there. So go ahead, feel free, shoot me a message. I'm always around. There you go. There you go, everybody. Thanks for listening. That's Dylan Nadler, the founder of Mindlock Mental Training, legend in the game and a trailblazer in mental training. Thanks, everybody. All right, guys, there you have it. There's my conversation with Dylan Nadler, the founder of Mindlock Mental Training. As you can see, he's a very well-spoken and smart individual that I think a lot of people would have got um, some value out of that conversation. So if you enjoyed this and you like and you want more content like this, make sure to subscribe on all the podcast platforms, YouTube, everywhere. Um, we're going to be pumping these out and I look forward to what's coming in the Couchies future. Let's go. <laughs>